From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. We all like to eat, and yeah. we all like to eat tasty food. Hopefully, we all like to gather around a table, and it's maybe the safest place that we can all gather and start a conversation. You're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. I'm your host, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you just heard from Naz Duravian, our featured guest today and author of Bottom of the Pot, Persian Recipes and Stories. When Naz was eight, her family fled Iran at the start of the 1979 revolution. Today, her popular food blog, also titled Bottom of the Pot, has chronicled her culinary explorations from her Los Angeles kitchen. Now, this cookbook, which is her first, features beautiful photos from Eric Wolfinger, which combined with Naz's recipes building on her Iranian roots, makes the Persian table come to life, springing from these pages into your own kitchen. In today's episode, we're talking with Naz about Persian cuisine, the process of creating her first cookbook, and the impact of today's political climate on her work. Plus, we're chatting with Andy Baragani of Bon Appetit magazine about Persian representation in food media, and checking in with Celia Sack at Omnivore Books to learn about other Persian cookbooks we might explore. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. Let's head now to our studio at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, where Naz Duravian joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Naz. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you so much for having me. So we're here to talk about your first cookbook, Bottom of the Pot, Persian Recipes and Stories. So you were born in Iran, and you moved uh, around the world before now ultimately settling in LA. Just to contextualize this a bit for, a fo- for folks, when did you sort of start cooking? It was when you came to LA, right, that you really started to cook more prominently? Yeah. Yes. So I left Vancouver to move to LA to pursue an acting career. Mm -hmm. And within a week, I was very hungry. And this wasn't because I hadn't eaten, but it was, I was hungry for a home cooked Persian meal. I was hungry for rice and tadig and the stew and yogurt and all the herbs. So that's when I realized I needed to learn this quickly because I needed to feed myself and my soul. So this is your first cookbook. Who is your audience for this cookbook? When you were thinking about who might pick this up and buy it, who did you have in mind? This cookbook um, came to being out of the conversations that um, I've had with my friends and family members around our kitchen table. So it was essentially my non-Persian friends who you know join us at our table and they always love what they're eating and yet seem a little intimidated by preparing it for their own families. Right. And they always made me a little bit sad because Persian food at its heart is about a home-cooked meal to be shared with friends and family. So they would ask me for recipes and um, and, I, and it dawned on me that I could collect it all and put it in one place, hence the cookbook. So the cookbook is for those interested and curious about Persian food. And then also for a generation of Iranians like myself, who either left when they were very young or were born abroad and yet have this hankering and nostalgia for the food of their grandparents or parents. And you open your book um, with rice, actually. Rice is such an important part of Persian cooking. You actually say the book begins, it begins with rice, as it always has. And you just mentioned Tadig, so maybe we can start there for folks who might not be as familiar with Persian cooking. Tell us a little bit about what Tadig is. Tadig 
is the bottom of the pot, right? Quite literally. Yes, so literal t- translation, right? Tah means bottom, mm-hmm. dig means pot. Right. It's as easy as that. Pretty much all our dishes are that literal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the language is very lyrical, but the names of the dishes are very straightforward. Um, tadig is what every Iranian kid and non-Iranian kid, every adult is what you look forward to when you prepare Persian rice. Iranians have elevated rice making to an art form. That's what sets our rice apart, I think. And it's in this two-step method of first parboiling the rice and then steaming it. And in the steaming process, you also make the tadig, which is the crunchy, buttery, crispy, saffron-tinged rice stuck. Well, hopefully it won't be stuck, but uh, (laughs) at the bottom of your pot. And then tadig, you can have bread tadig and potato tadig. I have a fish tadig in the book. Right. Um, but it's the, it's, it's prized. It's what everyone goes for and it's delicious. Right. And you, you say hopefully it won't be stuck because there's a little bit of, um, some importance in turning out the tadig, right? And there's some show to it, particularly with a rice tadig and having a really beautiful tadig turn out is really a thing to celebrate. Um, making Persian rice and then the tadig itself is what every Persian cook is measured up against. So Mm. for, you used to be every Persian quote unquote housewife. If you turned out a great platter of rice and tadig, you pass the test. Right. And if not, you would have to go and work on it and be upset about it for the next month or so. Um, so yes, there is a, sh- there's some show, but I always like to remind people that there's a whole lot of magic as well, even though there are different you know, very specific techniques and you follow them. Hopefully you'll turn out a nice looking tadig, but it doesn't work every single time. And that's okay. There's always next time. Right. <laughs> Take notes <laughs> right. and hope for the best for the next time. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, so you can flip the pot over like very much like making a cake mm-hmm. and you have a you know, grand presentation of your tadig, or you can first scoop out the rice at the top and scatter them like jewels across right. the platter and then break off your tadig pieces um, and serve it that way. Yeah. And, and obviously it takes some practice. And as you noted, it, it won't be perfect every time, but are there any like secret tips or tricks for how to make a great rice with tadig that turns out really nicely? Yes. So I would suggest it What matters the most is the kind of pot you're using and knowing your heat source. Mm -hmm. So I know my stove at home and how how it works and how hot it gets. It's also a gas stove and it might be different than an electric stove. I highly recommend using a nonstick pot, especially if you're just starting out to make tadig. And you've got to grease that bottom of the pot out. Sure. <laughs> you yes, want a ferrum. <laughs> I use butter and oil. Mm-hmm. You can use um all oils. You know, it's nice to have the combination and I use olive oil. But mm-hmm. if you like to use vegetable oil, that's up to you. Go ahead. You know, the Tadik police won't come and get you. <laughs> um and then in those first 10 minutes when you're setting the Tadig, so you have your heat source up higher, and it's to know when to turn it down. And we have these tricks. What my mother does, and I know many Iranian moms do this, is you lick your finger (laughs) and then you stick it to the side of the pot, which sounds very dangerous because it's a hot pot, (laughs) but it's very quick. And and if you hear that that sizzle sound, Mm -hmm. that means the tadig is setting and you can then turn down your heat source. But you could also... 
excuse me, not lick your finger and just wet it a little and then splash the water to the side. And if you hear sure. that, you know, sizzle and the water evapor- evaporating, it's fun to lick your finger and do it. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and it's an important trick passed down from mothers. So we always yeah. want to respect that. Yes. Um, and then of course there's one other, um, key to making, I think, a great tadig, particularly a rice with tadig, it, which is the kitchen towel that you tie around the cover of the pot, right? Which does, serves what purpose? So that, so we wrap the lid of the pot with a kitchen towel. That's not necessarily for the tadig. What ah. we sometimes tend to forget is the tadig is delicious and it's, you know, fun to make. But the rice itself is also, I would say, in a Persian home, it's even more important. You want all those grains to be individual, hmm. no clumpiness as you might be used to. Sure. You know, um, stickier rice, that's not Persian rice. You want each grain to shine on its own. So what the kitchen towel does is it catches the condensation from the lid. And so it, you know, it keeps it from getting stickier. Right. I think it's a great trick for making rice. I use it for when I make my quinoa, anything of the sort. Yeah, that is a great trick. So you write in your book that you can go to a market and ask for some help picking great, great rice and Iranians will talk about rice for hours. So we could too, but maybe we should move on to a little broader view of Persian cuisine too for folks. So you write in the book, I think rhetorically you say, what does Persian food taste like? And then you respond to yourself by saying it's fragrant, flavorful, elegant, cozy, unfussy, like a love poem, which I loved, quietly assertive, always bright, and then sour. And you say sour is the quintessential taste that distinguishes Persian food. We love anything tart, Mm. anything with a pucker to it. But this isn't the kind of pucker that makes you wince. It's more of a bright flavor, a flavor that, um, as I like to say, brings a dish to life, um, gives it its character. So um, we have a number of different ingredients, um, pantry and fridge staples that you could use to make a dish sour. Of course, there is lemon juice. Mm-hmm. If all else fails, use lemon juice. We, you know, squeeze it in your stews, in your soups. And then from there, we build on. There's pomegranate molasses, Persian dried limes, which are called limu omani. They come from Oman. They're the shriveled up dry limes that right. look kind of alien. <laughs> and yet they deliver this distinct, hearty flavor. Um, it's, it's slightly bitter. It's earthy. There's nothing like it. And I, yeah. ha- and I really recommend, um, people to seek it out and to use it. So there's the dried limes, um, there's verjuice, and then there is the sour green grapes themselves, which right. are um, in in season um, late May, early June, if you can find those. And what we do is freeze them, and then we throw them in our stews and some of our osh, which are the thicker soups. Sure. Um, tamarind, tomato paste. Mm-hmm. Tomato paste is adds depth of flavor, but it's also, it also gives you that um, tart, bright flavor. Um I think I covered them all. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and pomegranate molasses, I think, is one of the most surprising um, ingredients that people don't use enough of, at least in American cooking. I was first turned on to it, I think, from a Diana Henry book a couple of years ago. And it's just like 
blown my mind the ways that it can work in various dishes from like a salad dressing to any sort of roast or stew. Ice uh, it's cream. It's amazing. Ice cream. Drizzle I haven't tried it on ice cream. cream, on vanilla ice cream, oh, yogurt, amazing. drizzle it onto mm-hmm. your yogurt. It depends what kind of pomegranate molasses you're using too. If, sure. it, if it's a little more sour and tart and bitter a little bit or, you know, a little more sweeter. Pomegranate molasses is like magic, I right. think. And People always ask me, you know, if I'm making it this one dish and I'm going to use quarter cup of pomegranate molasses, well, what else am I going to do with it? Right. And like you just said, you can use it in your salad dressing, you know, as a dessert. Um, I really don't feel, um, don't feel attached to the recipe itself that this ingredient, you, you should only be using it for this particular dish. Um, you know, experiment with it. Now, herbs also play a really important part in Persian cuisine. Can you talk a little bit about the role that they play? Fresh herbs, greens, as we call them, Mm -hmm. sabzi, Mm -hmm. they are the foundation of Persian cuisine. Um, We don't use herbs by the tablespoon or the cupful. So it's mounds, (laughs) mountains of herbs. Handfuls, bushels, yeah. Yeah, so if you go to the market, it's by the bunch. We buy herbs by the bunch, and um, they are a key ingredient in our stews and our soups. They're the foundation of so many of the stews and the soups, like khoresh or misabzi, which is the fresh herb stew with meat and the Persian dried limes. Yes. Um, and, uh, and you use, you know, four bunches of parsley and two bunches of cilantro and green onion. So, and they just really, um, again, liven up a dish and add so much flavor to it. But we also always have a fresh, a platter of fresh herbs at the table. Right. And think of it as the salad component. Okay. Uh, at a Persian table. You, you make this perfect bite. So you have your rice and your stew and maybe a little bit of yogurt. And as you're eating all that together, right. <laughs> you might put a, a piece of Persian basil in your mouth with a little radish or green onion and parsley and it changes the whole thing. Right. It really um, freshens it up and it's also great for digestion. We're yeah. um, we're obsessed with digestion. We're a culture obsessed with digestion. <laughs> <laughs> so anything that might aid in digestion is considered a good thing. As it, and like I said, it's like a salad and primarily that's what's the role that salad plays at a sure. table too. And I think it can seem daunting for some people who aren't familiar to cooking with that quantity mm-hmm. of fresh herbs, but we were actually talking before we sat down about getting your kids involved, getting friends or neighbors who are coming over for dinner involved in the picking of the leaves and the prepping of the fresh herbs. And you, you wrote, and, and your book is just full of such beautiful prose, but you wrote this, this line that life happens in these spaces amid a field of greens, talking about being together in the kitchen and preparing the fresh herbs. And I thought that was just such a beautiful way of sort of representing the role that herbs play and coming together to prepare them. Yeah, thank you. It's no one wants to sit at the table alone and go through six bunches of parsley and sure. cilantro, you know, unless if you have some nice music on and maybe a glass of wine <laughs> right. or something. So I always ask my children and my husband, and if friends are visiting, I ask them to get involved. It's not a typical Persian way of doing things because you should have a everything prepared before your guests get, you know, come over. But I don't care about any of that. If you're visiting, I will put you on herb duty. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
And as you start going through the herbs, it's this meditative process almost. And I like to listen in on the conversations that come right. out of it. Sure. So my kids start talking to each other about whatever, you know, and it's, and it's kind of lovely. Right. And, and the herbs get done. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So. Um, I know I said you opened the book with it begins with rice as it always does, but actually if we go a page or two back, um, you actually open the book with this quote. Um, which I want to read. Our fellow diners stopped to watch. They were displaced people just like us, and they understood all too well these kinds of reunions, these moments when a piece of your old house comes floating by in the river, which is a quote from Abraham Verghese. Um, how did you settle on that quote, and why did you feel like that was the right quote to sort of lead people into your book? The quote came at the very end. So once okay. I was finished writing, um, each chapter in this book begins with a story. And they are reminiscences of my time in Iran, um, stories about my family in LA. And I was reading that book that the quote comes from at, I think maybe a few months before. And it always stuck with me because there's a bittersweet quality for me, um, in making this food in that it gives me so much joy to prepare and to feed my friends and family. And yet, it takes me back to um, a childhood that was abruptly stopped. And that was in Iran um, pre-revolution. And then we left. And that was that. It was, there's a before and after. And so there are certain scents like the saffron steeping in the hot water or the fresh herbs that will trigger some of these memories. And it is like a piece. And I just thought that quote was so beautiful that it is like a piece of your old house floating by and you can never quite catch it. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Nas Duravian. Now we're talking to Andy Baragani, senior editor at the Bon Appetit magazine's Test Kitchens, about a recent essay he wrote earlier this year called I Hid Who I Was for So Long Until I Became a Cook. Hi, Andy. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Hi, how are you? So you wrote in this powerful piece published earlier this year about embracing and celebrating both your sexuality and your heritage. One came before the other. It sort of took you a little bit longer to embrace your, you use the term, Iranianness. Um, in the piece. Can you talk a, a little bit about how that process was for you and how food and kitchens and um, the food industry played a role? Sure. It's, uh, it was certainly not a, a an easy process, but um, I think it just really started with, uh, and I mentioned the piece uh, that I wrote, uh, we're just having to cook the food from my childhood. And it was just kind of having to cook that food and using the ingredients my mother and grandmother did and smelling those dishes uh, and tasting them, it kind of brought me back. I was able to kind of let go of that shame. And that combined with the kind of uh, the desire from others wanting me to cook that food and, and connect with that and see how really can kind of open people's mind up. You know, food is so unique in that regards. Um, and I thought... Um, if I'm able to kind of give that kind of gift to others, uh, it would also kind of help me be more comfortable in my own skin. Yeah, absolutely. And the piece, when it was published, um, was celebrated by many people, I think, in the food industry. And I think many people reached out to you to let you know 
um, how meaningful it was, and particularly because of the way that you discuss food's role uh, in influencing you and helping you embrace those parts of your identity. Uh, why do you think this piece that you wrote struck such a chord with so many people? Oof, you know, I, I, I guess I want to acknowledge, like, you know, I did tell my story and, and granted it is my story, but like so many people have this, this kind of story, whether it's uh, surrounding their, their sexual orientation or their ethnicity or race. But uh, I think it's really just hard and uncomfortable for people to kind of write that story or, or tell that story anyway. And I think uh, I am glad that I was able to get to the point to feel comfortable enough to to write it and publish it um and to be quite honest i midway through writing the article i kind of was like why am i doing this like i don't i don't want to do this i don't want to put myself out there in that regards like i definitely had a moment where i'm like why do i have to do this but i i did kind of feel this obligation um and realizing that you know i'm i am quite fortunate that I have this position of being an editor at Bon Appetit and where we do have uh, a lot of loyal readers. And it's a story that I don't think we would typically, you know, publish uh, in Bon Appetit. But I think um, my editor, Julia Kramer, for the story, as well as my editor-in-chief, Adam Rappaport, really thought it was an important story to tell. And they they wanted to feature it and really empowered me to to tell my story. And I think people were able to relate to it um, wherever they might come from, uh, however they identify with. And um, if I was able to kind of provide any kind of hope or um, shared wisdom or just any form kind of empowerment, then I, I think I feel good about that. Now, you mentioned your role um, at Bon Appetit. Obviously, you're an editor in the test kitchen, and I think you've sort of become one of a few, maybe we could call them faces of Bon Appetit. Um, you produce, you know, a lot of great videos uh, on, on YouTube and on social media from the test kitchen. And so you're, you're relatively visible for the brand and you're joining a list of other people in food media and publishing, cookbook publishing too, um, who are sort of centering their Persian roots in their food work. So Samin Nosrat, who's writing for the New York Times um, and, and just had her Netflix show premiere, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Naz Darvian, who we're talking to today. Nilu Mutamid, who until you know recently was um, the editor-in-chief of Food and Wine magazine. Even, you know, folks like Najmi Abatmanglish, who's written another great Iranian cookbook um, coming out this year. Why do you think it's so important, uh, particularly, you know, today in 2018 um, in the United States for for Persian cooks and Persian food writers to be centering that part of their identity in their food media they're producing? Well, I think, um, you know, I, that, that list of incredible females that I have, I have either met or spoken to in some form, uh, every single one, uh, that you mentioned. And I have the utmost respect for all of them. And they are all badass women that I, I, I yeah. really love. I mean, I, the smile on my face is so big right now when I, when I heard all those names. Yeah, um, awesome. I think, I think the big reason is because we haven't really been able to tell our story. Iranian culture, there's, it, it's been a bit of a taboo for many reasons that I don't know if we have the time to get into, but just like touching on the 1979 uh, Iranian revolution and um, the, the hostage crisis. Uh, and then that combined with just like this um, post on 11 um, 
uh, I am, I'm trying to be careful with my words here, but um, there's been this darkness that has kind of taken over the Iranian culture, which is such an incredible culture. And I think it's really, um, it's misunderstood. And um, I think now more than ever, people are curious and have a deep desire to know uh, about different cultures. And, and uh, I think food now more than ever is something that people are no pun intended hungry for. And you don't really see uh, Iranian food out there in restaurants uh, around, around the U S and I think each and every one of the people that you mentioned, um, including myself, like, I think we are just trying to tell uh, our own stories and our own relation with the culture and the food, because, you know, Iran is not a, it's not a 300 year old country. It's not a 500 year old country. It's not a thousand year old country. If you go back into ancient Persia, it's, it's a very, very, very old culture. And, and the food is one of the things that, uh, really stands out about it. Um, and it's so unique, uh, those flavors uh, in that region of the world. So I'm feel great that we've been able to kind of, uh, just scratch the surface. And I, I know that, uh, all those ladies and myself have a lot more stories to tell. Yeah. Well, we're here for them. We're here to to read them, to listen to them. We'll let you get back to your duties in the test kitchen. But thank you so much, Andy. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. That was Andy Baragani, Senior Editor at Bon Appetit's Test Kitchens. You can find a link to the full piece Andy wrote for Bon Appetit in the episode notes or on our website, saltandspine.com. If you're a regular listener of Salt and Spine, you know that we record all of our episodes at the Civic Kitchen, the recreational cooking school in San Francisco. Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. We, of course, love the Civic Kitchen's open, airy, and welcoming space. It's really perfect for taking lessons from their expert teachers and learning different techniques, cuisines, and styles. And personally, I love their wonderfully curated cookbook collection, which is the backdrop of all Salt and Spine interviews. Now, don't miss upcoming classes at the Civic Kitchen like Food and Wine Pairing Made Easy and Mexican Tamales and Moles. You can find a list of all the Civic Kitchen classes and sign up at Civic kitchensf.com. Unfortunately, we don't have time this week for our regular In the Kitchen segment, where Salt and Spine executive producer Allison Sullivan and I cook from this week's book. But if you want to hear the results of our first attempt at making rice with tadig, as well as making Naz's baglava cake, head to saltandspine.com. And now, back to our conversation with Naz Dravian. There's one more ingredient that I want to talk about before we turn to the book a bit, which is saffron, which is obviously another important ingredient in Persian cuisine. Can you tell us a little bit about the role saffron plays? Then I want to come back to some of your great writing um, on saffron. We can't talk about Persian cuisine without talking about saffron. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the prized spice in the Persian spice cupboard. It's very expensive, but there's a reason why it's so expensive. Uh, at harvest, you have to pick each stigma off the crocus flower. So yeah. it's it's a big job. There's only like three, There's four, three, three yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. per yeah. flower. Yes, per flower. So Persians have this method of preparing saffron, which gives you gets more bang for your buck. <laughs> okay, yes. And what we do is we grind the saffron threads. Hardly ever do we use the thread itself. So right there, you're actually creating a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so you grind the saffron threads, and then you make 
almost like a tea, but it's you add a couple of tablespoons of very hot water to your however much ground saffron you're using, and that's what you use in your stews. You pour the entire the whole quote unquote tea that you've made, or you can just make a larger batch and keep it in the fridge and use one tablespoon at a time of the liquid saffron. Okay, and how long would that last? Oh, you, it's a few days. Few days. Yeah, okay. but cover it yeah. well. You mm-hmm. don't want that beautiful saffron scent to dissipate. So cover it. And would you also, I think you say you can also grind the threads to ground saffron and store that before adding the water. Uh, for a while. That's what I do. Yeah. So when I buy my, um, my saffron threads, I have a dedicated saffron spice grinder. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> and I don't let anyone else touch it. And it <laughs> yeah. says for saffron only. Right. You don't want any coffee beans in there. No, no. Or, or any other spices. Um, <laughs> so you can grind it up and then I, you know, I store it in these little jam jars. And what was the recipe collection and creation process like for you? I think you, you say you didn't have a lot of cookbooks and things around when you were growing up. And then even in the process of making the book, a lot of the recipes were sort of collected in, in an oral fashion, right? From relatives. All the recipes from relatives were collected in oral fashion. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> no one writes anything down. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was very sparse. Okay. <laughs> so it was, you know, a handful of this and then do what you like and make it, you know, smell good. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's how recipes were handed down to me. Um, I have a few traditional recipes that are from my family. My father's side of the family, they're from northern Iran, from Gilan province. And my mother's side of the family, they're from um, Azerbaijan province. Uh, it, this was a great opportunity for me to also connect with yeah. family. Um, I got in touch with my aunt who lives in Tabriz mm-hmm. and we would text each other. Like I would text my version <laughs> of her recipe and she would give the okay or not. Sure. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, so there are traditional recipes, but this is food that I'm now preparing for my family in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So it's food that has traveled with me and most likely changed. And I don't feel too bogged down by having to make it 100% traditional because I, I grown up abroad and I live in LA. So I'm going to use whatever is available to me here. And you talk about getting recipes from your mother and some of the things that she would say, I just loved, like um, she would describe adding as much as would make it tasty, just enough for it scent to dance around the kitchen, making your head spin and your heart thump, or you note even your favorite, whatever it takes to bring it to life. So that process is really interesting and sort of bringing those and converting them into this cookbook. And then you also talked about how these recipes have changed with you as you've moved around the world, as you've traveled, as you've started your own family. Can you talk about how you worked in this cookbook to respect uh, and incorporate the culture of your past with some of the family traditions and, and ways of cooking and lifestyle that you have now? I think it's always you need to pay homage and respect tradition. So if you're going to change a dish so much that it's not going to resemble the original dish at all, you can't call it by that name anymore. Mm-hmm. You right. can say inspired by or it has a twist. But at the same time, like like I mentioned, um, I'm cooking for my family in Los Angeles. So and and it's the food that has traveled with me in Rome and then in Vancouver and it's food that has um that has grown and i call it accented food 
Okay. So it's, it's got my accent. So when you make it for you and your family and your home, I hope it picks up on your accent because yeah. that's what's important. There's this point in the cooking process that my mother likes to say, now make it delicious. It's the now, she will literally say, it's the now make it delicious moment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and what that means is we've done everything we were supposed to do up to this point. You taste it now. And you add what you think it needs or, you know, put the lid on to, you know, make it juicier or take the lid off. So I'm a big believer in making things work in the kitchen for you and not feeling so tied down to the recipe. It needs to have a life of its own in your kitchen. It reminds me of this a comparison you made to your training as an actress um, and the training when you're embodying a character or a particular role to absorb as much as you can, prepare as much as you can. And then when you get on stage or in front of that camera, throw it all away. Throw it all away. And you... how did you connect that to the recipe and cooking process? So you've read the recipe. Hopefully you've read the head note. <laughs> There's good tips in the head note. Yes. And hopefully you first read the recipe through so you know, so you're prepared for what's coming next. Right. And you've looked at the ingredients list and, <laughs> and you've seen that it says, you know, quarter teaspoon of ground saffron steeped in hot water. Right. <laughs> Important. <laughs> and you have that ready to go. Once you've done all that, and once you've made maybe the rest, if you're not familiar with Persian food at all, maybe you've done it exactly as written the first time and then made your own notes in the book. And, you know, maybe it needed more lemon juice for you because you like it with more of a tart taste. Maybe it needed less lemon juice for you. Then the second and third time, throw all that away. Trust that your instincts are there and have fun in the kitchen. It's yeah. kind of like you've stepped on stage or they've called action and you can't start thinking about it. You know, that's not going to make a nice, a good performance. When, when you see the work, that's not a great performance. Right. When you're free with it. And I think, I mean, without getting too, um, you know, I don't, cooking should be fun. And I think sometimes you can taste it when it's, um, too rigid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. It has to have some life in it. It has, yeah, it to, has have to have some, some life. Love. Yes. Yeah. And sometimes that means messing it up even. Yeah. We learn from that. And sometimes it tastes better. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> a, a surprise failure. Yeah. You know, can become delicious. Were there cookbooks that you turned to or were inspired by as you were working on making your own cookbook? Yes, there's uh, the the one cookbook that I think um every Iranian owns and Iran I don't know that um people in my mother's generation owned too many cookbooks but there's mm -hmm. one cook cookbook by Rosam Montazemi and it's this 700 page or even I think it might be like 900 page okay. book from the first publication was in 1964 I believe but it covers Everything from Persian cooking to French cooking to Thousand Island dressing. It's okay. incredible. Yeah. <laughs> and the first chapter is called The Art of Entertaining, which I'm not surprised being Iranian that that's sure. what you would, you know, <laughs> start <laughs> yeah. with. So, um, I, I did refer to that. Um, Najmiye Batmanglich's book, Food of Life, I think. Najmiya, Mrs. Botman Gleach has just done us all the biggest, um, she's given us all the greatest gift for those of us that have grown up in the West. 
um, I believe maybe it was 30 years ago or 25 years ago when that first book was published, mm-hmm. her book was published. So those are, the, and then there's, I have one book from, it's Northern Iranian food. Okay. And it's very special to me. It was my father's and he passed it down. Well, I kind of stole it from him. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's, a, it's just a lovely, lovely book. Um, and it's in Persian. And through this process, my Persian got a lot better reading these recipes and trying to figure them out one word at a time. I'm pretty good now yeah. <laughs> with my Persian. Yeah. An added benefit. Yes. You also wrote a piece recently in the Atlantic, um, which was titled, which is a, a beautiful, wonderful piece, um, about your process of writing this cookbook in our modern sort of political context in the world we live in today. Um, and it's titled Writing an Iranian Cookbook in the Age of Anxiety. So you had signed your cookbook deal in summer 2016, right? And we're sort of headed into... There the, was still the, hope. There was still hope. <laughs> we were headed into, you know, this presidential election. How did it feel to be sort of working on this book and then finishing this book and getting ready to have this book out in the world at the time when immigrants and particularly immigrants from the Middle East, Iranian immigrants were facing renewed attacks from this administration? Um, you, you write about the travel ban. How did it sort of feel to be putting your story, your family's story and these recipes into this book? at that time. It was very surreal. Yeah. It was a surreal time. I mostly tried to just hunker down and work on my book and tell my story. Mm-hmm. There was so much happening every single day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the news was breaking by the hour. And I knew that I couldn't let a lot of that noise seep into my work because I already knew the story I wanted to tell and I didn't want it to be a reflection of what was happening on that particular day. Sure. I still needed to stick to my story. So I really worked hard in those two years to, um, to shut it all out. It was difficult. I, you know, and then came the travel ban. Actually, there is the chapter where I talk about when the airport, we land in Vancouver at the airport. And that week that the, fir- the initial travel ban was imposed. I was working on that chapter. So here I was thinking about my time and my relationship to airports mm. and it all, you know, it all fell apart in this country. Yeah. So it was very surreal. It was, it, it was, and it's an interesting time in history. But as I mentioned in that piece in the Atlantic, having gone through what we went through, but also having heard my parents' story from, you know, even before the revolution, um, these things happen in history. Leaders come and go, and you just have to be able to ride it out. Unfortunately, I think there are some who will be affected quite badly by it. Uh, it doesn't feel like a very hopeful time right now. But um, again, coming back to my parents' words, you always have to have hope. Otherwise, you just can't keep going. You can't put one foot in front of the other. And as they had to in a time of turmoil for their children. So I look to them and their example. And e- even though I'm, you know, today in particular, we're feeling quite down. I just think, well, there's still tomorrow. What can we do? Yeah. What can we do to make a better tomorrow? Absolutely. Do you think cookbooks can be a vehicle for bridging borders and bridging walls and helping people understand cultures and worlds that they don't yet know much about? It sounds good. 
(laughs) (laughs) It sounds like they should, right? I mean, Julia Tertian in, in her blurb for your book says that's what your cookbook does. I mean, she, she says it reminds her of why she fell in love with cookbooks in the first place. They teach us about the world outside our own walls, invite us to make new memories inside our kitchens. I think food is the most fundamental thing that we can all agree on, right? We all like to eat and yeah. we all like to eat tasty food. We hopefully we all like to gather around a table. And it's maybe the safest place that we can all gather and start a conversation. I think dialogue is the most important thing. Once we stop talking, then we might be losing hope. But if we continue a conversation, and hopefully if it is around uh, a feast or a small gathering with, you know, tasty dishes around the table, then yes, I think, I think it can. I don't want to get too, um, you know, I don't think food is the answer. And, you know, uh, no, I think these are, these are very serious times, but I do think just having this conversation with you right now is lovely because maybe there's something in my story that you can relate to, or maybe it opens up, you know, the reader's eye to part of my story that they might not have known. Yeah. So even if it's just a small thing, I think it can make a difference. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm a white guy from the Midwest and I found <laughs> so much to relate to in your story and I was just riveted reading Well, isn't that cookbook. lovely? Because who would have, you know, maybe yeah. you wouldn't have known that you would have so much to relate to, to a uh, Persian girl's sure. <laughs> story. Sure. Yeah. And we also talk a lot about representation in the cookbook industry. It traditionally has been more dominated by white male voices. We've also seen more Persian voices come into the cookbook industry and the food media at large recently. You know, we have your great new book. Obviously, we have Samin Nosrat, who wrote mm-hmm. Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, but also is like, she wrote a wonderful New York Times column on Tadig, mm-hmm. and she has a great Netflix show coming. You just did this great um, conversation in New York um, with Nilu Motamid. Do you see like progress there? And what do you think is on the horizon for Persian food in America? Yes, yes, yes about time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's this, we've been here for thousands of years. Our food's been here for thousands of years. So about time, I think America is ready to embrace Persian food in our kitchens. You know, I think there are restaurants and people are familiar with going out to Persian restaurants, but I think it's time to to try to make the rice and the tadi at home and just add a fresh platter of herbs to your meal, whatever it is. And it AIDS and digestion. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so yes, I think it's time for Persian food. It's time has come. It's now. Um, I think it needs to get out into the mainstream. It's been this lovely little secret. I think Iranians have to be ready to let go of it and let it get out into the mainstream to allow people to, you know, put their own spins on it. Just be careful what you call the dish. You right. know. <laughs> sure. Yes. Respect. Um, but yes, I, I think it's absolutely time. Yeah. Now, we like to end with little games, each of our conversations. So um, we loved that each of your chapters in the cookbook started with these really evocative narratives, but also with a singular word to sort of conjure to mind some ideas and themes that might come ahead. So your soups chapter, Ash, starts with the word heart. Stews are soul. Non is life. Sweets are love. So I wanted to maybe play a little game where I said a few things, um, and you responded to me with one word that sort of encapsulates what you think about when you think about that. Let's do it. Awesome. Uh, so the release of your first cookbook, Bottom of the Pot, what's the one word that encapsulates that feeling? Tums. <laughs> a proper noun. 
<laughs> I love it. Um, how about your daughters? You have two daughters. Oh, love. Um, tadig. Is there one word that describes tadig? Sunshine. Uh, I like that. Um, Los Angeles, where you live. Dry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, true. Okay, and last one, being on Salt and Spine. Joy. Oh, thank you. Well, it was so fun to have you, <laughs> Thanks Nas. for Thanks having so me. Thank you. We're headed now to Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack in this week's From the Vault. Hi, Celia. How are you? Hi, Brian. Very well. Great. So we just sat down um, to talk about Nas's book, Bottom of the Pot, and I'm hoping you have something to share with us today. Oh, sure. I love Persian food, and yes. it's really hitting its stride in cookbooks. Uh, I think her title is fabulous, Bottom of the Pot, mm. referring to the rice that sticks to the bottom of the pot in, right. in Persian cooking, which I never seem to be able to do exactly right <laughs> yeah. i always burn it every time but uh but that's okay because i can you kind of want it to burn a little it. bit yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but luckily we have enough uh good food around that i'm able to have it out sure um there are so many great persian cookbook writers especially coming out of the uk and with um saffron tales by yasmin khan right. and there you know there are just so many i can't even i can't sabrina geyer and all these great writers um so she comes uh, on the heels of that. It's a food that I feel like, it ha- again, has so many spices, like we were talking about with Indian food. Right. Um, and so many flavors that get to be combined in, an, in a way that is easy for the home cook. Uh, but it's flavors that are new. I mean, they're just being in- new to Americans. They're just being introduced to us. You know, a lot of these countries that have had wars in them or or arguments i should say with the united states right uh we often end up getting really interested in their food afterwards uh and this is a perfect example with uh all the problems that we've had with iran um that when the shah left iran uh and you know a lot of the a lot of the religious leaders came in and and really ruined it for a lot of people who were used to living a certain way, much more uh, openly and independently. A lot of Iranians moved to America and to England uh, and started cooking here. And that's how we started having that food introduced to us in the first place. Right. Yeah. And actually, Samin Nostrat had a wonderful piece a while back in the New York Times about how to achieve that crispy rice at the bottom of the mm-hmm. pot. So if you are looking... I have to go back and yeah. read it. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to look there as a resource. And yes. if, if you're listening, um, check out that piece to achieve the same technique. Definitely. Great. Thanks so much, Celia. Of course. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from this episode on our website, saltandspine.com. There, you'll find two recipes from Nas's Bottom of the Pot, the baked saffron yogurt rice with chicken and the smooshed potato and egg. You can also hear Nas reading an excerpt from her cookbook and enter our weekly giveaway to win your own copy of Bottom of the Pot. Remember, if you love hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Our program today was produced by Allison Sullivan and myself. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. A special thanks this week to Andy Baragani of Bon Appetit. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, happy listener. I'm Yardley. And I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. And we are the hosts of the true crime podcast, Small Town Dicks. On our podcast, detectives from small towns all around the world give us their firsthand accounts of the memorable crimes they investigated in their small town. The new season of Small Town Dicks is out now. But if you're new to the podcast and you want to start at the beginning, we have over 125 episodes for you to binge. So please join us for an original take on true crime. Small Town Dicks, available wherever you like to listen. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.